Hi, welcome to Lights, Camera, Author. This is the podcast where we talk with writers who, who authors who write about Hollywood and music, uh, the entertainment scene in general. And I have with me tonight a very special guest. His name is Kenneth Womack, and his new book is called Living the Beatles Legend. And it is the story of Mal Evans. And if that name is unfamiliar to you, this uh, Ken, this was a guy who really handled a lot of the behind-the-scenes events for the Beatles, didn't he? Absolutely he did, uh, and folks might have uh, noticed him lurking in the corners of Get Back, uh, Peter Jackson's documentary a few years ago, and, um, you know, Mal was a beloved member of of the Beatles story. It's amazing that we're talking about the Beatles tonight because it's, well, this is November 3rd, and... The new song, the, a new Beatles song. <laughs> it feels weird to even say that. Drop today, now and then, and it just—it's amazing that what fifty-three years after their breakup, we're still finding out new things about the Beatles. And your book, uh, "Living the Beatles Legend," that really is a lot of new information that people hadn't heard before. It really uh, does have that that kind of veneer to it. It um, Mal left behind an enormous uh, cachet of photographs and diaries and, um, you know, you name it, uh, several manuscripts that he'd authored. And uh, I had benefit of those thanks to the Evans estate and uh, who were excited to finally tell their father and uh, husband, ex-husband story after all these years. Yeah, and he was around the Beatles from almost the beginning. I believe it was, what, April 1963 is when, or maybe August 1963. August 1963 would be when Mal started uh, as a full-time member of the team. But he had been around uh, He had been around so much that he'd actually seen Pete Best uh, as their drummer at one point. Um, so Mal was a, a veteran of their story. Uh, but he wasn't full time until August 1963 when uh, their their primary, uh, well, the only member of their entourage, really, Neil Aspinall, was just overwhelmed by that thing they called Beatlemania. And um, he needed desperately needed help. And uh, the help came in the form of Mal Evans, who quit his uh, full time job as a telecommunications engineer and took a chance on on the four lads from Liverpool. And Mal, Mal Evans, he was a, <laughs> I don't want to say, a, well, he was a, he was a straight button type of guy. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't like, you know, the Beatles were like always the leaders, it seemed in style as well as music, but Mal Evans wore horn rim glasses, a tie all the time. Uh, it's amazing <laughs> that he fit in. Yeah, you know, it's uh, he really was a fish out of water. He was also considerably older uh, than they were. He was a, a family man. You know, he was like a, a guy with a real job who had obligations, who just happened to love rock and roll and couldn't resist spending as much time as he could with those guys. Yeah, and it was a and the telecommunic telecommunications job, it was a real stable job. I mean, it was I mean, he, and he took a big chance. I mean, nobody knew in August 1963. Maybe they were big in in London, in England at that time, and in Germany. 
but nobody you know, knew that. It was, a, it was an enormous uh, risk because he had a pension, he had a, a mortgage, he owned a car, he was educated. He was the first member of his family, like a lot of first generation post-war educated uh, folks to to assume all of those those parts of the mantle of society. And his family was not excited uh, about the idea of the Beatles. They were concerned that they would be a flash in the pan. And like you said, you know, August 1963 is before British Beatlemania, which uh, is usually located in October 1963 at the London's Palladium. Uh, really before that, you know, they were a regional act that had not some number ones. And, uh, you know, obviously history tells us that Mal was right to take the risk. But what's interesting is when we go back to those days and think about them, how unthinkable uh, it really was to do something like that. Oh, exactly. I mean, it was like, it was like, you know, you, you go to work nine to five, you come home, raise a family. Then when you're 65, you retire. You yeah, know, and, <laughs> and you certainly don't, and you certainly don't, you know, put all your eggs in, in that kind of basket. Oh, of course not. I mean, that was a, that's a big risk there, you know, and um, how did, well, first off, this book itself, I mean, he was, he was writing this book. Um, for those of you who don't know what happened to Mal Evans, I mean, it's, you can find this out on Wikipedia or anything like that, but Mal Evans passed away, I believe what it was, 1976, I believe. That's right. January 4th, 1976 um, at the duplex where he lived at the time. Right, and he uh, and he was writing this book, and it was unpublished, and it got it got lost for decades, didn't it? <laughs> well, it really did, and and um, he'd actually completed the book, uh, and as folks uh, will learn, much of the Wikipedia entry is generally generally incorrect. But yeah, the materials were lost with his death. In fact, he was very close to them in the room. Uh, when he was killed, they were they were not far away from his body. Uh, Mal had collected all of this this massive material, and um, really, uh, it, it was the publisher um, Grosset and Dunlap at the time uh, who was hoping that they would still be able to. You know, they'd given him advance. They were hoping to still make something out of the story, and. Uh, Consequently, they kept the materials for years, finally depositing them in the basement of the New York Life Building, uh, and they were saved, thankfully for all of our sake, by uh, an Estonian temporary worker who was there to throw things out uh, for the publisher. And she <laughs> saw this material and she said, Beatles stuff, <laughs> and the rest is That's amazing. Yeah, it was like, like oh, well, just toss it away, I thought, you know, and... Um... Well, and it was going to the trash heap. I mean, they were right. uh, they had been purchased by Putnam's uh, when we had all of those. Well, we still do all of those mergers at the great publishing companies. And, um, you know, Putnam's was located uptown. They wanted to divest themselves of the offices where where Grosset had been for for just decades at that point. And, uh, you know, it was about throwing things away. And she got she even got pushback when when she was working to to toss all of this material. Wow, that's amazing. It's so amazing that nowadays, you know, anybody finds some new Beatles stuff, it's immediately like, you know, it makes the news, it's all over the place, it's on the internet. Um, but, and Mel Evans was more, and this was the misnomer 
um, even when he was killed, uh, I believe what the Los Angeles Times said, jobless roadie. Yeah. Uh, for the Beatles. Um, he was, he, okay, he handled some road things that a roadie does, but he, he was so much more than that, especially to Paul McCartney. Well, especially to Paul and after the Beatles breakup, you know, he was hardly jobless. He was receiving a paycheck from the Beatles. He worked for them uh, until the day he died. And, uh, you know, Mal, Mal continued to work um, for Ringo and John and George. The When Mal died, the lawsuits had only just been settled. And in fact, uh, Paul McCartney had reached out to him about working on the Wings Over America tour. So things looked ostensibly rosy for Mal in that sense, um, you know, like like all true fans. And there's no doubt Mal was massively, uh, first and foremost, as Pete Best said to me, a fan. Um, you know, Mal wanted the Beatles to get back together desperately. So he shared that with much of the Western world, right? If you look back at those days, um, <laughs> you know, that was very important to him. But, you know, Mal, Mal had an income. Um, he had what looked to be a bright future, uh, certainly with the publication of his book. Um, it, too many forces came together working against him at that time. Yes, indeed. And um, now, some of the things that he was responsible for, and if you listen to Beatles music, you'll know what I'm talking about. The one that I remember is Maxwell Silver Hammer, because he was the one who was, when the, when the, uh, when the refrain comes in with Maxwell Silverhammer, he is the one pounding on the anvil. <laughs> he certainly and, is. He's not on the Abbey Road album. He is the one who rehearsed it in uh, in Twickenham Studios uh, during the Get Back sessions. Mal and Neil were actually uh, on vacation. They were staging a kind of uh, walkout for the one and only time during their Beatles years together. Uh, at that point, and it had a lot to do with Alan Klein firing them. You know, they were kind of put out that some new guy could come in and start dismantling what they were about. That's that's the thing that that surprised me, even by reading it. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess it was a cost cutting measure, and Alan Klein thought that they could trim the fat someplace. And well, these I, guys, you know, you know, I think in retrospect, when we look at it, um, and I look at it, I think he didn't like folks who might be at variance to his wishes, right? So those are two insiders. They've got to go because we know in in the with the the sober backcast of history as Vladimir Nabokov would call it, right? We know mm -hmm. that Alan was there to loot the place and rip them off. You know, right. I mean that that was his track record before that with other organizations. Um, we know that when George Harrison will be accused of musical plagiarism over My Sweet Lord, Alan will actually take the other side against his client and make money off of that situation. He's, he's a pretty terrible guy. And, yeah. uh, you know, Neil especially looked like trouble to Alan. He was a smart guy. He clearly had the Beatles ear. He didn't much know what to do with with Mal. Um, who also was an insider and, um, you know, they had to be fired. The The problem for Alan Klein was, and, and for you folks out there, this is the greatest answer ever to you're fired. They both got to say, well, that's fine, but we don't work for you. <laughs> <laughs> they were the literally the only two 
uh, they were the only two employees um, of uh, <laughs> of, of Apple, you know, right? The only yeah. two employees of uh, of Beatles and Company. You know, they didn't work for they didn't work for Apple. They worked for the Beatles themselves. Amazing! Uh, wow. Yeah, so they were exempt. Um, and uh, you know, as as much pleasure as it must have been not being fired. Well, you know what the next part is. What does Alan do? Well, he makes life a living hell for both of them. Of course, yeah. You know, that's what you do when you know you couldn't destroy them in one move. You'll destroy them in in dozens of moves, and uh, that's what he goes. He sets about to do. Yeah, and once the Beatles are broken up, then Mal and Neil are vulnerable. Extremely. And, and you know, Neil is keeping Apple together as a kind of skeleton organization. Um, he, we know, you know, suffers many substance abuse problems, has a, just a terrible first half of the 1970s. And Mal wants to work with Badfinger, a group he discovered. And knowing this, Alan says, well, you can't work with them then. I'm assigning them to somebody else, which is an absolute moment. I think it's one of the cruelest things in the book, frankly. Yeah is the way Alan treats Mal, um, who really had simple ambitions. He just loved the guys in Badfinger and wanted to see them succeed. And of course, any of your listeners who knows the story of Badfinger knows that it may be Rock's greatest tragedy. Oh, yeah. And um, and let's talk about something happier because Mal Evans was a driving force in one of the most famous album covers of all time, bar none. <laughs> um and I'm not talking about Abbey Road, everybody. No, I'm talking about I'm talking about Sergeant Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band. Uh, the Beatles came to Mal and said, "Hey, help us get people for this for this cover idea that we have." Yeah, he worked like a dog on it. So did Neil. Um, they would <laughs> they were tasked at times with literally polling, um, you know, dead celebrities and estates to make sure that they could, uh, they would allow their likeness to be used on the cover. Mal, Mal even went one better and worked in the studio uh, with um, the visionaries behind the cover, Jan Haworth and her husband at that time, uh, Peter Blake. And, um, you know, he just uh, had a ball doing it, uh, as, as as Mal Evans would. He ha- had a, just a complete uh, thrill of a lifetime. He even put a little uh, a little soldier uh, on the cover in one corner you can see from from his house. So yes. uh, it was. Yeah, he was a, an instrumental part of, of bringing that into fruition. Uh, this is hardly your first Beatles book. I mean, you're one of the foremost Beatles experts, I would say, in the world. Um, but I got to ask you, um, I take it you have seen the new video. For oh, I, I um, well, I was very fortunate. Um, I can talk about it now. I signed an NDA um, that uh, I was very fortunate to hear uh, the song about, I don't know, a month or so ago, maybe two months ago. Um, and uh, also allowed to watch the video. And uh, I'm just so excited for. Um, other folks to be able to enjoy it now. It's been a, a long month waiting uh, to see the kind of reception it would get. And um, I hope at some point in their world, you know, the Beatles and their heirs can sit back and, and you know, take a pat on the back, which they deserve, um, you know, for bringing 
so much joy to the world. And we're seeing a lot of it again these last few days. It's it's really something to behold. You know, even if you don't like the song, right? Um, and I have seen very few who, who don't enjoy the song, but even if you didn't, um, it's wonderful to see something bring bring joy to so many people. I was wondering what you, what you your first reaction was when you saw it. Well, when I actually when I when I heard it, they played us the song, I believe first. Um, and when you're in a darkened studio with top notch Dolby sound, you know, it's I, I try to really drink those moments in because um, I when you're in a studio, as you probably know, you're never going to hear it as well as you do. <laughs> so I was really just taking all the sounds in and, and enjoying them. Um, but it was the video that I thought would really, really excite people. And it looks like that's come true, that folks have just gone absolutely gaga over the thing. And, and I'm not surprised. It's wonderful. You know, it's um, it celebrates the elements that still bring people together and and will, I believe, for decades more over the Beatles. Oh, when I saw it this morning, I saw it this morning. And when I first saw it at the beginning, I was like, yeah, this is a nice little ditty. It sounds like the songs that they were working on in the 1969-70 era. Um, when we know, of course, that this is when John Lennon wrote the song. Um, but when I saw the video, as I got into it, and I saw what they were doing with the, uh, CGI, I mm-hmm. guess is what it, I mean, it, it just amazed me. Because all of a sudden, you have the four Beatles, George, Paul, John, and Ringo, together again and it is done such a way that you can you couldn't swear that they weren't in the same room together yeah it had a tasteful quality to it right and um and that's so important because look the kids of today and well and the older kids like ourselves of today we know when we're seeing something that isn't authentic we've we just uh we've we've been trained by culture uh, to recognize that, and there's a there's a kind of beauty in the authenticity of that that video. It's uh, it's really quite something. It is, but let's let's talk more about the book. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> back to the book. <laughs> back to the book here. Listen, the new song is gr- everybody. The new song is great. Go listen to it. Watch the video on YouTube. It's out now. But let's talk about the book here. Um, Mal Evans. Um, I guess it's okay to. Say, say like you know he was he was killed by the police he was um, he was and it it just doesn't make any sense i mean was he was he i won't i don't want to say suicide by cop oh, but... i think you could and, and and that's exactly what happened one of the first things i asked gary evans when he came to me about this project about three years ago i said you know what happened and he said well dad was <laughs> a pioneer uh, when it came to, you know, suicide by cop. And and that's exactly what happened. He did not intend to live another day. Really? Uh, no, he, he was done. And, uh, you know, different parts of his life were coming together. And um, he, he couldn't see his way beyond that Sunday night, uh, January 4th, 1976. Um, and, you know, over the years... Uh, prejudices developed and not without some cultural baggage, right? I mean, um, we we know many tragedies involving police officers and guns and right in, in domestic incidents. This just doesn't happen to be one of them. And yeah. uh, 
I, I don't know that everybody will be convinced, quite frankly, when they read it. Um, I spent so much time researching it, um, working with police sources, reading police reports, um, you know, talking to I've talked to everyone who was alive in Mal's orbit uh, during that time uh, there in L.A. And, uh, you know, some of them didn't realize until retrospect re- retrospectively that Mal was doing things such as, you know, teaching his girlfriend how to winterize the house. Um, you know, talking about things that had to be taken care of on regular intervals. He was preparing her after Mal. And, uh, you know, she didn't realize it at the time. Uh, But, you know, thinking about it subsequently in the days and weeks ahead, she realized what was going on. And uh, the police, you know, we can all ask questions and do after incidents like this, then and now, you know, why couldn't they have winged him right or or what have you? Um, well, yeah, you don't know what he's carrying at the time. Right. And he did happen to have a loaded rifle. And um, and I would add a couple of things in their defense. Um, you know, again, you know, we wish that our loved ones would be you know, wounded or what have you. And there would be another way. Uh, but a, a couple of things in their defense. They didn't just, you know, come up and push the door down. They they took their time and they were trying to talk him out. Um, there was a baby, a four-year-old in the room next door. So they have to be thinking about that. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, uh, you know, Mal has this loaded rifle and he begins to point it at them. And that's when cops do what cops do. Yeah. They can't, they can't, you know, it's a snap decision at that point. And it's better to be like safe than sorry when you're, when you're a, a police officer. Yeah. But I mean, it's 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 a tragedy that we know today. You know, it's. um, uh, You know, but it was started by Mal Evans, who (laughs) very consciously did not want to come out of that room. He had written a will the night before. Um, He had been saying goodbyes to several people, spoke to John Lennon a few days before that. Um, You know, it it's horrible, but it's it's real. And uh, in fact, today, I'm sorry, just yesterday, uh, you know, folks begin to contact you. I've had this with with all my books. Um, when you get a little bit of publicity, folks hear about it and they they let you know what their part in the story was. I met a fellow who was in the house the day after uh, they took Mal's body away and uh, the phone rang and it was John Lennon. And oh, my God. New York City, he had heard that something went went wrong with Mal and he basically said, you know, what the hell is going on? And uh, they had to tell him that Mal was dead. And he, of course, just broke into saw. He was distraught. You know, he had just spoken to Mal. They they just adored who Mal was. And and the idea of him dying that way was was just too much. That's a, that is really sad because, yeah, that's nobody expects it. Maybe maybe you don't you know, you don't recognize it when it's happening. And then after it happened, it's like, oh, these are the signs that we sh- maybe should have picked up on. But you never know. Yeah, well, and John even did a little bit. You know, he he said to Mal, you know, it looks like you're heading toward divorce. You know, John was divorced, right? He knew what that was like. And he said yeah. there are a couple of ways to react to this. You know, some people um, see a silver lining and uh, other people perhaps um, – go to the rest of their darker angels right and uh it's clear which way mal went but it but he loved us let's 
let's be honest, he loved the four boys, John, Paul, George, and Ringo. There was no doubt oh, about that. No, no question whatsoever. And and they returned, you know, that love. There's just no doubt that that they loved him too. Um, you know, they they cherished their relationship with him. Um but uh you know the, you know when you think back about that time we just knew so little about mental health for one thing comparatively speaking um and when you talk about their business you know they were by then they were in their 30s you're not supposed to be a rock star at 30 right <laughs> <laughs> you know i mean uh, paul was in the midst of of a worldwide comeback as, as time magazine would, would sort of call it the McCartney comes back, you know, but beyond that, um, you know, the, they were supposed to be in the twilight of that kind of work. Nobody imagined you would be doing that kind of work and certainly not in your forties. Right. You know, so I, I think Mal who was 40 probably felt like maybe much of it had passed him by. That's a real shame, but but, you know, he had a lot of great times with the Beatles. He had a lot of great events. He was witness to a lot of great musical events, the Shea Stadium Tour, um, Beatlemania, when it first began at its height. So, and he was he was the living witness, well, you know, the witness to, uh, to everything that happened with the Beatles. He really was. And, you know, I, I think about Mal, you know, if you, you fly up 40,000 feet, right, in the narrative helicopter for a moment, when you think about Mal, he was integral to the band because, you know, the thing that lasts is the music. It was what John Lennon always told us would matter. He said, you know, you can clamor for reunions, but really what you need is to listen to the records. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> where, that's where we did the thing that's going to last. And of course, as we just discussed with that, the goings on of this week, John Lennon was damn right. You know, he was. <laughs> he really was. I mean, he was an absolute. When, when Brian Epstein said in 1965, the children of 2000 will listen to the Beatles, you know, before Rubber Souls even come out, people thought he was nuts. You know, he wasn't even right enough. Um, no, we're talking 2023. You know? Yeah. And I, I think that there's no reason to doubt that new generations won't keep discover, discovering the Beatles. Um, with as much force as they do now. Um, I hope so. I teach the Beatles every fall and uh, it's amazing just to watch the kids and enjoy them in their way, you know, um, and, and, and have their own discussions and contemporary thoughts about the Beatles. It's very powerful. Um, you know, so when, when Mal was in that moment, 40 was, a, was an old, that was an old person, right? Yeah. You know, this isn't going to last. <laughs> and so That's it's quite I... remarkable then um, that, that that John was just so right about that music. And one of the reasons we have the extraordinary music of the Beatles is they had a Mal. They had a Neil working with Mal. They had a team that would do anything for them. So if it was 3.30 a.m., they've been working on, I don't know, pick a great track on Sgt. Pepper, the White Album, Abbey Road. They're doing something magnificent. You know, most people would be like, you know what? It's way past my bedtime. I'm done. <laughs> well, Mal could get the meal for them. It could allow them to work another couple of hours. If a guitar broke or a string snapped or they needed any kind of music paraphernalia, Mal had a Rolodex, right? He had his little black book and he could call up the, the person who ran Sound City and say, you know what? I got the boys here and I'll meet you at your shop. I need something. 
That's a may that's a great friend to have. They needed the anvil, right? And they were in Twickenham in January 1969. Paul said, Find a hammer and an anvil. Mal thought for a <laughs> And then he looked in his black book and he had the address of a theatrical agency in Twickenham and they had props. And so he got the anvil as a theater prop, (laughs) you know, so he was a guy who had the Rolodex and, uh, you know, he was in a lot of ways, he was a fixer, you know, they'd go to towns and they wouldn't know what to do. And of course, in the sixties, you know, cities weren't ready for rock tours. You know, they didn't, they didn't know how to accommodate, um, you know, out of towners who may be on the wrong time zone or, or what have you. you know, a lot of a lot of American towns closed down. Right. What? <laughs> seven o'clock, maybe Eight earlier. O'clock. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Back in those days. So, you know, Mal was a was a fixer. David uh, Richter, who was one of John's assistants, said that John's favorite thing about Mal was that he knew every police chief in every town in the world. <laughs> oh, you need that guy. You do. <laughs> Well, the book is Living the Beatles Legend, The Untold Story of Mal Evans. Kenneth Womack is the author. Ken, I really appreciate you being on Lights, Camera, Author tonight. Oh, it's been dynamite. Thank you so much. And um, really enjoy your show and all the good work you do. Well, thank you so much.